Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Friday, March 1st, 2024. Alright, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today. The U.S. expects Israel to invade Lebanon. So CNN reported on Thursday that U.S. officials believe that Israel is planning to launch a ground invasion into Lebanon in late spring or early summer if a diplomatic solution is not reached. So a senior Biden administration official said, quote, we are operating in the assumption that an Israeli military operation is in the coming months, not necessarily imminently in the next few weeks, but perhaps later this spring. An Israeli military operation is a distinct possibility, end quote. So notice he's saying that the U.S. is operating under the assumption that Israel is going to launch a ground incursion into Lebanon. Israel and Hezbollah have been trading heavy fire across the border since October 7th, and Israeli officials have been hinting about invading southern Lebanon if Hezbollah does not move back from the border. That's what they're saying they want. But this administration official said that an agreement that only pushes Hezbollah back would not be enough for Israel. The U.S. official said that Israel wants to go into Lebanon to mow the grass to destroy some of Hezbollah's infrastructure. And that's a term Israel has always used for their bombing campaigns in Gaza before the current one that they just got to go in there, kill a few hundred people and mow the grass every once in a while. So if an invasion does not happen, this official is saying that Israel wants some sort of buffer zone where either troops from Lebanon's regular army or UN peacekeepers are deployed. A second administration official said that while there is talk about a diplomatic solution, there is a growing group within the Israeli government that says, this is the way the official put it, he says they're saying, hey, let's just take a shot, let's just do it. Let's just take a crack at at a war in Lebanon. The official said that an Israeli ground incursion could lead to, quote, a major, major escalation that we don't even know the proportions of, end quote. So U.S. intelligence has determined that if Israel escalates the situation into a full-blown war, it likely would not be able to handle fighting Hezbollah and maintaining military operations in Gaza. And I believe Israeli intelligence has said this as well. And that means Israel is probably looking for the U.S. to directly intervene if this full-blown war in Lebanon happens. The CNN report said that the U.S. was the main mediator between Israel and Hezbollah, but that's not really true because the U.S. does not talk directly to Hezbollah. They talk to the Lebanese government. And the U.S. official put in charge of finding a diplomatic solution is a guy named Amos uh, Hostein, who was born in Israel, and he served in the IDF. He's American. He's a dual Israeli-American citizen, uh, but he was born in Israel and served in the Israeli military, so how is Hezbollah going to look at him as a neutral mediator? Uh, Sources close to Hezbollah have said that the group would halt attacks on northern Israel if a ceasefire was reached in Gaza, but Israel is sending the other message saying that ceasefire in Gaza means escalation in Lebanon. And the U.S. officials have acknowledged that a war in Lebanon would benefit Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who is expected to face a political reckoning for allowing the October 7th attacks to happen once the Israeli operations in Gaza are over. So there was an interesting quote here from one of these administration officials uh, 
The official said, quote, once the war is over, his expiration date arrives. So he needs to maintain the impression, maintain the narrative that Israel is still in the middle of a campaign to try to stave off efforts to remove him, end quote. Despite Netanyahu's motive for a major regional war and the massive civilian casualty rate in Gaza, the U.S. continues to provide Israel with this unconditional military support and I covered this, I think, a few months ago at this point, but U.S. officials told HuffPost that they believe President Biden's policy of unconditional military aid to Israel could embolden Israel to expand in Lebanon and lead the U.S. into a major Middle East war. But they're going to go ahead and keep uh, doing this anyway. All right, so the next one here, Israeli troops kill over 100 Palestinians seeking food in Gaza City. So this article is from Middle East Eye, and I'm sure... A lot of you have heard about this uh, at this point. This is being called the Flower Massacre now. So reports came out on Thursday morning that Israeli forces fired on Palestinians in Gaza City who were trying to get food from this aid convoy that was coming through and killed at least, uh, according to the ministry, the health ministry in Gaza, killed at least 104 Palestinians. And they say Israeli forces opened fire on this crowd of people. Now, the IDF came out and claimed that they were cr- people were crushed to death, that there was a stampede because of the aid. Um, they said that dozens were killed, but then they did acknowledge that they fired at this crowd. And, and I saw one statement said, oh, we're only responsible. We only shot 10 people was what the IDF said. So, I mean, either way, uh, there's videos um, from the ground that you can hear the gunshots and see people running. It's not clear to tell exactly what happened. Israel released an overhead video showing a big crowd of people around uh, one of these food trucks. It didn't prove anything. Um, but I saw interviews with all sorts of eyewitnesses saying that Israeli soldiers, Israeli tanks, and Israeli planes opened fire here. Um, and the death toll, 104. So in, in a single massacre. So either way, even if there's some truth to what Israel is saying, if there was some kind of stampede, which I haven't seen any evidence for, um, that's happening because people are starving to death, because Israel is starving these people to death. Again, this is in Gaza City, where where people are starting to die of, of dehydration and starvation. Um, so of course, people are going to rush aid trucks, especially if they have children and they are struggling to get them food. So and they keep warning, you know, the UN experts and and NGOs and famine experts keep warning that it's just a matter of time before people start dying in mass of starvation, especially in northern Gaza. All right, so the next one here, Lloyd Austin says that Israel has killed over 25,000 women and children in Gaza. So this was on Thursday at a House uh, hearing. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, the head of the Pentagon, was asked by Rokana how many Palestinian women and children have been killed in Gaza, and he said over 25,000, which is higher than the number that Gaza's health ministry has been putting out. Now, after that, the Pentagon walked back what he said and claimed that he was referring to total Palestinian deaths based on numbers from Gaza's health ministry, but that doesn't really add up because... Right now, the total number is over 30,000. It was over 25,000 a month ago. Um, so unless he's that out of the loop. But he was asked explicitly how many women and children have been killed, and he said over 25,000. And Gaza's health ministry, they say the death toll has crossed 30,000, and they've said that that includes about 70% women and children, which puts the death toll around 21,000, which either way, 
Uh, it's horrific. But if you factor in the estimated uh, 8,000 people who are who are missing, presumed to be dead under the rubble, then you know you do get close to 25,000 women and children uh, being killed here. So it's not that far off what Austin said. If you remember going back earlier in the conflict, it was in October when the death toll was around 7,000. It was, you know, the the ratio was still so high. You know, so many children were killed. And Biden was asked about this, and he basically accused the Palestinians of lying about the death toll. And then a few weeks after that, a senior State Department official said in a a Senate hearing, well, actually, we believe the, the numbers from Gaza's health ministry are accurate. And that they could actually even be higher uh, than what they're putting out because they don't account for the people under the rubble. There's also the possibility of people being buried before being sent to a hospital or a morgue, which is where they record the names. Um, so, and there's the communications breakdown. So, I think it probably is higher. Um, and Austin's number isn't that far off base. So, it's interesting. Was he was that a mistake? Was he just saying that, or is that something? Because you have to figure. That the Pentagon, that the U.S. military does have its own estimates, you know, based on Gaza, what Gaza's putting out and based on the people that are missing, you got to think that they're at least uh, coming up with some numbers. And then uh, another thing to point out is that Israeli media has said that they believe the Gaza health ministry numbers are close to accurate, though they claim that they've killed more Hamas guys than than they than they say. Um, so it was just interesting when I saw that, I thought... Uh, it sounded right, um, but they walked it back. But again, who knows? Maybe some more will come out about the whole death toll thing because there was a lot of internal dissent after Biden accused them of lying about the number. All right, so the next one here. Israel announces new West Bank settlement expansion. This article is from Kyle Anzalone at the Libertarian Institute. And Israel has approved the building of 3,600 Israeli homes in a new West Bank settlement. And the announcement came just days after Secretary of State Antony Blinken declared the settlements were inconsistent with international law. And this is uh, Bezalel Smotrich. He's the finance minister. He is a minister in uh, the defense ministry. And that basically gives him the power to approve the expansion of settlements. And the thing about him is that he's a settler and he openly wants to conquer the West Bank, annex the West Bank and get the Palestinians out of there. So this isn't a surprise to see him do this. Um, and we've seen the Biden administration speak out against the settler violence. They sanction a few settlers and about this plan, uh, but they're going ahead and doing it anyway. Not that it, and it doesn't matter because they're not still not threatening to cut off military aid or anything like that. All right. So the next one here, Biden says no ceasefire in Gaza by Monday. So president Biden on Thursday walked back a prediction he made earlier this week that a ceasefire in Gaza could be reached by Monday as Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu called Hamas's demands delusional, signaling that a hostage deal is not close. So Biden was asked, do you still think a ceasefire is possible by Monday? That's something he predicted earlier this week. And Biden said, quote, hope springs eternal. I was on the telephone with the people in the region. I'm still probably not by Monday, but I'm hopeful, end quote. So when Biden first predicted a ceasefire by Monday, both Hamas and Israeli officials said that he spoke too soon. Hamas officials have said the main gap right now is still the fact that they want a permanent ceasefire. They want the Israeli troops to withdraw, and Israel clearly does not want that. And the U.S., they just want to pause the slaughter of Palestinians. So in Tel Aviv on Thursday, Netanyahu placed all the blame for the lack of a deal on Hamas. 
He said, quote, we face a brick wall of delusional, unrealistic Hamas demands, end quote. And he added that Hamas, quote, knows its demands are delusional and is not even trying to move close to an area of agreement. That's the situation, end quote. You remember Netanyahu rejected Hamas's last offer, which was a 135-day ceasefire and the release of all the Israeli hostages, the release of uh, about 1,500 Palestinian prisoners. And the goal was to reach a lasting deal at the end of that. Um, so according to the times of Israel, uh, well, right now the deal that's on the table is for a six week ceasefire and Hamas releasing 40 hostages. And according to the times of Israel, both Israeli and Hamas representatives are discussing the potential deal with Qatari officials in Doha. And Qatar has said that there have been no breakthroughs. Um, and then I pointed out some, I reported, uh, earlier this week that Haaretz was saying Netanyahu was complicating negotiations by adding an additional demand to have the Palestinian prisoners deported to another country and for his vow that after any ceasefire, they will invade Rafah was basically what he said. All right, so the next one here, the story behind the New York Times October 7th expose. So this is an article from The Intercept, and it is about this Big report that came out in the New York Times in November that claimed Hamas, there was, you know, systematic sexual violence committed by Hamas against Israelis on October 7th. And there was people right away, I know, like the guys at the Gray Zone, Mondo Weiss did some good reporting on it, uh, poked holes in this story right away. The, The biggest hole was the fact that the family that they featured on the top of the story, they said that the their their relative who was killed on October 7th was not there was no evidence that she was raped and that came out after the the story was published and so i didn't realize this so one of the people who wrote this is a woman named anat schwartz she's an israeli filmmaker and former air force intelligence official and she was assigned by the new york times so what this intercept article gets into is that she did these interviews with israeli media about her report for the new york times and she said you know that they asked her, they recruited her, a former Israeli air intelligence official, they recruited her to write this story, um, which seems like a pretty, you know, uh, seems like they were clearly trying to present a narrative. And this is in November, as The Intercept points out, that global opposition was mounting against Israel's military campaign. And then they came out with this big story about um, rampant sexual violence. And so... Uh, Schwartz and another thing, the New York Times is now reviewing her social media activity because she has liked some pretty, uh, some some pretty crazy tweets. She liked a tweet saying that Israel needed to turn the strip into a slaughterhouse. Uh, the the post said, "Violate any norm on the way to victory. Those in front of us are human animals. So turn it into a slaughterhouse." This is the woman who the New York Times reported uh, recruited to to write this story, and then one of the big. Uh, revelations here and this is from again a podcast interview that she did uh schwartz detailed her extensive efforts to get confirmation from the israeli hospitals rape crisis centers trauma recovery facilities and sex assault hotlines in israel as well as her inability to get a single confirmation from any of them she was told that there had been no complaints made of sexual assault and a New York Times spokesperson said that to The Intercept. So the, the Times has kind of walked back this report. They initially said that there was evidence for systematic sexual violence committed by Hamas. And now they say that the report shows that Hamas may have committed it. 
which is a big uh, climb down. And again, this was used as a propaganda tool to justify the continued slaughter of Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. Um, so it's a pretty big report. There's a lot of details here if you want to read it. And, and another thing that The Intercept covered before is that the New York Times has a podcast. I think it's called The Daily. And they were going to do a podcast. You know, they do podcasts about their big investigations, but they never did one about this. And apparently it's because a lot of people in The Times didn't think it passed, you know, uh, was credible enough. And now apparently The Times is looking, trying to figure out who's leaking this stuff. So they're trying to crack down on how uh, the details behind the scenes at The New York Times uh, has gotten out. So definitely uh, interesting stuff. Um, all right. So the next one here, Jane Doe, who immolated herself at the Israeli consulate, is still alive. So this article is from Sam Husseini. It's a reprint from his Substack. He's one of my favorite journalists out there. Um, but he uh, he looked into this story. This is something I completely missed uh, after the Aaron Bushnell uh, thing happened. Um, I saw some people say that this a woman actually set herself on fire in protest of Israeli what Israel's doing in Gaza at the Israeli consulate in Atlanta, and nobody knows her identity. Uh, Sam Husseini could not find that out, but it, the Atlanta Fire Rescue Department said that the woman who is referred to in the report as Jane Doe is alive and is in stable condition at Grady Memorial Hospital, where she has been since the immolation. After repeated requests for her name, the department stated to this reporter in an email that it does not disclose the identities of victims and repeated inquiries to Grady, which is a public hospital, went unanswered. So we don't know the name of this woman, uh, but she's only 27 years old. Um, so, and we don't know really anything about her. Um, so, but I'm sure, um, some details are going to come out now that some, you know, journalists are on the case about this. All right. So the next one here, Putin says that Russia's nuclear arsenal is on full combat alert. So Russian president Vladimir Putin said in a speech on Thursday that Russia's nuclear arsenal is in full combat alert, a warning that comes after French President Emmanuel Macron said the idea of NATO deploying troops to Ukraine was not ruled out. So Putin said this in an address to the Federal Assembly, which is both chambers of the Russian parliament. He said, quote, the strategic nuclear forces are on full combat alert and the ability to use them is assured, end quote. And then later in the speech, he specifically addressed the talk of NATO sending troops to Ukraine. He said, quote, they are selecting targets to strike on our territory and contemplating the most efficient means of destruction, end quote. Um, and there he's likely referring to U.S. and NATO intelligence support for Ukraine. He went on, quote, now they have started talking about the possibility of deploying NATO military contingents to Ukraine. But remember what happened to those who sent their contingents to the territory of our country once before. Today, any potential aggressors will face far graver consequences. Um, and he says Russia has weapons capable of striking targets on their territory, end quote. Um, and he also said that the West was spooking the world about the threat of nuclear conflict and, and asked if they really know what that means. Um, so that's his response to what Macron said. And now let's see. After Macron made those comments, there was a big uproar, uh, but he is doubling down on this idea of not ruling out sending troops to Ukraine. 
So Macron, the French president, on Thursday stood behind his comments about NATO not ruling out sending troops to Ukraine, despite the uproar that it caused and the warning that it drew from Russia. He told reporters, quote, these are sufficiently serious issues. Every one of the words that I say on this issue is weighed, thought through and measured, end quote. So he said, you know, he thought it all out when he made those comments. And here he is doubling down. Um, and this is on the same day that you have Russia talking about nuclear weapons and, and issuing this warning to the West. Uh, but that does not phase the French president. And so, as I covered, a lot of NATO countries came out and said, no, 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 we're not sending troops. But the one standing behind Macron is Lithuania, the country that borders uh, Russia, borders Kaliningrad, and it also borders Belarus. Uh, It has a military of about 15,000 strong. That's their active duty force. And they're saying, yeah, we should think about sending troops to Ukraine. Um, And that was their foreign minister. And then the defense minister said, well, we would just send them to Ukraine for training and not combat. And then I know I covered this yesterday, but it's important to point out that there are NATO special operations forces on the ground in Ukraine, at least 97 of them. That's what it was last year in March, 2023. And um, that included 14 Americans and 50 British soldiers. The British were the, the biggest presence out of the NATO countries. All right, so the next one here, Russia claims its first Abrams tank kill in Ukraine. So this article is from Will Porter at the Libertarian Institute, and it says Russia's military has claimed to have destroyed a U.S.-supplied M1 Abrams main battle tank in Ukraine for the first time, with reports stating the multi-million dollar weapon was knocked out by a cheaply made suicide drone. The defense ministry announced the claim on Tuesday following a flurry of operations around the city of Avdivka, which fell to Russian forces earlier this month following a major Ukrainian pullback. Um, so I believe the, the U.S. has sent 31 of these Abrams tanks, and this is the, the first one that Russia is saying that they killed. So, yeah, 31 Um And this was one of the things, you know, in the beginning, they said, we're never going to send tanks to Ukraine. We're never going to send planes to Ukraine. But then they end up uh, sending all of it, despite this risk of nuclear war. And it seems like the NATO countries are like extra crazy these days, I think, because it's clear that Ukraine is losing. Now, this this last story here is Finland. Finland, which shares an over 800 mile border with Russia, is saying that Ukraine is free to bomb Russia with our weapons. And this article is from Politico, uh, Politico EU, and it says that Ukraine can use weapons provided by Finland to hit targets on Russian soil, senior officials in Helsinki said. And remember, this was another thing that in the early days of the Russian invasion, this was something the U.S. would always warn against. Um, but now it's clear Ukraine has used plenty of American and other NATO weapons inside Russia. But just to have Finland openly saying this, and this is... Um, the chair of a Finnish parliamentary defense committee said, quote, I'm not going to try the the name there. <laughs> uh, this person said, quote, if necessary, Ukraine should also strike military targets on the Russian side. It is a completely legitimate defensive battle that Ukraine is waging. The U.N. charter allows military targets to be attacked across land borders, end quote. But of course, the issue here is the risk of escalation of NATO Weapons being used to hit Russian territory. You put the shoe on the other foot. Um, So that's it for the news for today. Um, So I wanted to share some exciting news uh, with you guys. I won a Pierre Spray Award for Defense Reporting and Analysis. 
Um, and this is a award that started last year. Uh, ben Cohen, actually, of Ben and Jerry's, uh, founded this award for journalists, and it's named after Pierre Spray, who is a well-known critic of the U.S. war machine, of the uh, F-35 specifically is what he's best known for. And um, I won a runner-up award, and so did Gareth Porter, uh, who's a very uh, seasoned investigative journalist who's done a lot of great work on Iran um, and Israel recently, but uh, he has also been a longtime contributor to Antiwar.com. And then the top prize went to Max Blumenthal of the Gray Zone for his work exposing the lies and, and challenging the narrative of October 7th, you know, basically reporting on Israeli media reports about the Israeli military killing Israeli civilians, which was hidden basically from Western media. Um, so it's a pretty cool thing, pretty cool company to be in. Um, so I just wanted to let you know. And it's a serious panel of people that pick this award. And then there's going to be like a little event for it on March 10th, which is a Sunday. So that means that week, I'll, I'll remind you later that week, um, there's not going to be a show, but it'll, it'll be cool. Um, to go and meet these guys, you know, both of them, Blumenthal and Porter. I mean, I read them for years and years before I ever even started writing. Um, so it's pretty cool. Uh, all right. So the viewpoints, go check those out. One from Ted Snyder, how the West provoked an unprovoked war in Ukraine. One from Trenton Hall, Biden's Yemen policy is not working. One from Brian McGlinchey, Iran's Jewish population belies claims of Tehran's genocidal intent. One from James Banford, Israel's far right finally gets the war that it has always wanted. So please go check all of that out. You can always support us by sharing this show. Like, subscribe, follow us on Instagram, follow us on Twitter. Um, tell your friends about antiwar.com. I hope everybody has a good weekend. It's March already. This means it's basically spring here in Virginia, which is crazy. Um, but I'll be back after the weekend. I'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening.